Hey, welcome again to The Scrum, WGBH's politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley here with Peter Kadzis. Peter, hello. Greetings and salutations, listeners. So a few weeks back, Peter, you went to a conference in Washington, D.C., which is part of a bigger intellectual project on the right that is probably unfamiliar to a lot of our listeners. What was that event all about and what are the people who you saw there trying to do? The name of this conference was National Conservatism. This is part of a larger effort for the ideological people on the right to redefine themselves or reinvent themselves in the wake of Donald Trump's election. Trump's presidency not only exploded the um, national political establishment, it also threw a hand grenade into what had been um, a very stable ideological stable, if you will. The basic idea is that um, conservatives in general and Republicans in particular have, since Trump's been elected, living in the past. They've, they've been sort of yearning for the days of Ronald Reagan. But I really went to Washington uh, hoping to sit down with one guy, Daniel McCarthy, who um, is a longtime editor of very respected conservative journals. And the reason I wanted to talk to Dan, who was one of the organizers of this convention, was because I read a piece of his in May of this year in First Things magazine called A New Conservative Agenda, in which he laid out his thoughts for the 21st century for conservatives. It hit me like a thunderbolt. So much of what he said rang true. There were two things in particular he said. One I've already stated that conservatives need to tailor their thinking and their actions to the world we actually live in. The second was even more powerful to me that U.S. citizens should be the basic unit of the economy. You know, whether you're on the left, whether you're on the right, in trying to analyze economic policy, it's like married with children. In my mind, it, it's how does it affect a married couple with two kids and a dog? What was it that you found so powerful about that suggestion in particular? It's concrete. While Dan was writing to conservatives, the idea of focusing on the basic economic effect on individual citizens is something that transcends partisan boundaries. Well, it actually reminds me a little bit of the way Elizabeth Warren has been running her presidential campaign, right? She may no. not be reaching the same conclusions, but she's focused very squarely on the existential ramifications of economic policy for people. Warren is. And, and I think you've given me an opening to, to make another analogy, and that's that, look, Donald Trump blew up the Republican Party. Bernie Sanders almost blew up the Democratic Party. So in some ways, there's a search on the left and the right for what is that common strain that united the Trump and the Sanders voter. And, and I think Dan McCarthy's piece in First Things really spoke to me about that. Before we get to your conversation with Dan McCarthy, can you describe 
what the scene was like at this convention, who the people were, who you saw there. And I don't mean just the big names, although there were some of those that you should probably mention, but uh, who was coming out to, to watch the big names in action and maybe even what the feeling was in the air in terms of whether these people believe that history is on their side right now. Well, there were a lot of men in blazers, um, a lot of women in summer dresses. There was no sense of triumphalism there. You know, right after Ronald Reagan was elected, I was covering stock and bond markets for the New York Daily News. And I went down to uh, another conservative conference. And boy, you walked in there and it was like the, the band was all but playing Happy Days Are Here Again. The alcohol was flowing. These guys had triumphed and they were mainly guys. This crowd was not evenly sp split between men and women, but a lot of women, predominantly, overwhelmingly white. You know, the most interesting person I met was I was having lunch, the, you know, local sort of healthy burger place, and I shared a table with a woman from Wisconsin. And, uh, you know, we got to, I finally said, um, geez, what brings you here? And she said, well, you know, my family chipped in and, paid my way here because uh, every weekend before Election Day, I lead the family discussions about who we're all going to vote for. The next day, I ran into an agricultural organizer from Western Massachusetts who works very closely with organized labor. Huh. And I said, what brought you here? And, and he was saying, you know, it, it just sounded like something that might be interested. You know, he said, I've never heard conservatives really talk about why workers are so important. Look, there were big names, Tucker Carlson, John Bolton, more importantly, Patrick Deneen, who wrote the, the seminal book, Why Liberalism Failed, J.D. Vance, um, the author. Oh, of, the hillbilly dude. But I, I tried to talk to people I had no idea who they were <laughs> to get a sense of what was on their mind. And um, they had a lot of concerns and they had pretty open minds. They were all essentially conservative people, but they were open to new ideas. And in this mix of people uh, was Daniel McCarthy, who we're going to hear from in a second, who you sought out. Was he getting the rock star treatment or was that reserved for people like Tucker Carlson and John Bolton? No, the only rock star treatment went to the, the Carlsons and Boltons. Okay. Dan will speak for himself, and why don't we just cut to him? Well, my name is Daniel McCarthy. I'm the editor of Modern Age, which is a conservative quarterly publication that was founded all the way back in 1957 by Russell Kirk, who wrote The Conservative Mind, which is considered one of the sort of defining texts of the modern conservative movement. And I've been involved in conservative journalism for over 15 years now. Uh, and at one point, I was editor of the American Conservative magazine, basically between the years 2010 and 2016. How would you place this conference on national conservatism uh, into the context of conservatism in general and the Republican Party in particular? Yeah, you know, I think that conservative thought has had this national conservative dimension uh, for well over 25 years. And much of what is being said here over the past few days um, echoes or reinforces themes that someone like Pat Buchanan 
had campaigned on back in the 1990s, during 1992 and 1996. So there's a sense in which, even though Trump is a new phenomenon and has really revolutionized the American right, he's done so with a number of themes which have been sort of percolating and uh, streaming through uh, the conservative subconscious for quite some time. As far as the relationship between all of this and the Republican uh, Party is concerned, it does seem to me that, you know, there are in the background of the Republican Party, whether you go back to someone like Robert Taft and his view of, uh, you know, a more restrained foreign policy, uh, you know, in the lead up to World War II and then after World War II in the early Cold War, um, or whether you go even further back all the way to Abraham Lincoln, that such themes as um, industrial policy, um, uh, themes such as, uh, you know, a foreign policy of restraint and not going abroad in search of monsters to destroy actually have uh, a pretty good pedigree among the Republican Party. And it seems to me the Cold War really confused people a little bit. Uh, the Cold War saw us adopt a rather internationalist foreign policy and also a policy of um, sort of trade deals and uh, opening our markets and um, you know, working with other companies, uh, other countries to develop their economies. All of that I think was strategic. That was part of winning the Cold War. That was part of uh, sort of building a broad coalition against communism. And at the end of the Cold War, there was a need to rethink these policies. And I think someone like Pat Buchanan did rethink them. Someone like Ross Perot did as well. But um, too much of the mainstream Republican Party uh, failed to do so. And as a result, you had kind of 25 years or so of uh, a lost uh, quarter century uh, on the American right. Let's go back to Pat Buchanan for a moment. For people of a certain age, he is either a legend or a boogeyman. Uh, I've always found him quite interesting. But what did Pat Buchanan champion that's still in play today? Well, basically all of the major themes that uh, Trump campaigned on and that have been outlined at this conference were things that Pat Buchanan was talking about uh, nearly 30 years ago. That's true with respect to foreign policy, where Buchanan was caricatured as an isolationist. He was someone who didn't want to get involved in global conflicts and uh, exporting democracy and nation building. It's true with respect to immigration, where Pat Buchanan had a uh, pretty hard line, just as Donald Trump has today. And it's certainly true with respect to uh, trade policy. Uh, Pat Buchanan was, uh, you know, called a protectionist. He was certainly someone who believed in economic nationalism. And you see that very strongly here at this conference uh, over the weekend, where uh, just last night, for example, there was a uh, debate on industrial policy. And then later this afternoon, there's going to be a panel with three speakers on economic nationalism, including one speaker, John Carney, who currently works for Breitbart, who um, had actually been a Buchanan staffer on his, I think, 96 campaign. The consensus at this conference is that our immigration policy isn't working. But there's a great sympathy for the idea of legal immigration itself. I also take note of the lack of reference to what the Trump administration is itself doing. Uh, can you, Dan, in some way connect or relate these threads? Well, the Trump administration uh, has been a little bit haphazard in all sorts of its policies, uh, including uh, with respect to immigration. So the wall that uh, Trump had campaigned on um, obviously has not been built. Uh, the Trump administration has a kind of hot and cold approach towards immigration enforcement and will often, you know, sort of signal that it's about to start, uh, you know, immigration raids or something like that, uh, and then will follow through in a half-hearted fashion or not at all. So there's this sense in which, um, you know, obviously you do have a crisis on the border right now with a very large number of people claiming to be refugees, most of whom probably do not qualify under our laws. Uh, but nevertheless, the sheer mass of people is something that is uh, rather unprecedented right now. And the fact that it's 
you know, a large number of women and children, which is also very unusual. Uh, you know, in the past uh, 15 years, most, uh, you know, immigration and most, um, you know, sort of claims that were being made were coming from uh, able-bodied sort of um, uh, working-age men. And that has, you know, its own sort of um, upsides and downsides. But the fact now that you have a great many women and children claiming uh, refugee status or immigration, uh, you know, coming over as immigrants of one kind or another, is posing new problems. Um, there's also the difficulty, too, which you're seeing Trump uh, try to deal with, that, um, you know, it has become clear to coyotes and other people who want to engage in human trafficking or to facilitate uh, illegal forms of immigration, that um, using children is one way to gain sympathy and to, to try to do this and to bypass uh, some of the restraints and restrictions that would otherwise apply. So Trump is dealing in the usual sort of um, rather ad hoc fashion uh, with a really difficult situation. I think with this conference, you've seen more of a theoretical discussion of immigration as opposed to dealing with this uh, you know, sort of crisis that is uh, upon us and that has you know, sort of no easy answer. So at the, at the conference here, I think we're talking about immigration in terms of, first of all, what would immigrants, immigrants assimilate to in the 21st century, where it seems as if most of our institutions of culture and education are in the hands of a progressive uh, sort of ideological elite, which has a view of America that is very different, I think, not only from the view of America of the people attending this conference, but also the view of America that probably the uh, majority of you know, sort of ordinary Americans across the country would have. Um, so there's one concern there. I think there's also a concern that um, with respect to the economy, um, corporate America sees uh, large-scale immigration, legal and illegal both, as being something that uh, sort of helps their bottom line, regardless of whether it has a negative impact on, uh, you know, American citizens, especially working class and poorer American citizens. So both on the cultural and economic uh, sides of things, I think at this conference there is the sense that um, large-scale immigration is not a good idea. Let's switch topics. I'd like you to reflect on the never-Trump Republicans. It seems to me that many of the most prominent never-Trumpers were ideological soulmates of Republican administrations, you know, that frankly got us into the mess we're in. No, I, I entirely agree. And it's not only uh, people like Peter Weiner and David Frum who had served in uh, the George W. Bush administration, but it's also people like uh, William Crystal, who had been a uh, you know, very outspoken supporter not only of George W. Bush in general, but in particular of his uh, interventionist foreign policy into the Iraq War. And of course, uh, William Crystal and many of these other, uh, you know, never Trump people were folks who had been very closely aligned with John McCain as well. So there's been a division, uh, I think, in the American right for some time now. And um, you're seeing that continue to play out. Now it's playing out under the rubrics of Trump and never Trump. Uh, but in the past, you know, these divisions have been called neoconservative and paleoconservative or various other uh, denominations. You know, um, there had been a civil war on the American right that really started right at the end of the Reagan administration. And even during the Reagan administration, there were some uh, factional infights, um, which tended to be overlooked by the mainstream press, but that actually were quite significant to conservative intellectuals. After Reagan left office, there was this great question mark as to how someone like George H.W. Bush, who was not a movement conservative, would follow up on uh, Reagan's agenda. And George H.W. Bush, of course, became known for the Gulf War. He became known for violating a, a pledge not to raise taxes. And in general, he became known uh, for being someone who was not very much of an ideological conservative in a, a kind of older mo mode. 
And thereafter, you saw um, this uh, attempt to create a kind of neo-Reaganite, emphasis on the neo, I think, uh, uh, conservatism after the George H.W. Bush years. So during the uh, Clinton years and then during the George W. Bush years, you saw um, you know, people like William Crystal and institutions like the Weekly Standard try to create a more, you know, for lack of a better word, globalist conservatism that would be um, you know, in favor of wars to uh, export democracy, that would be in favor of really global integration of markets and of um, you know, even of populations. And in fact, one of the interesting things is if you look back during, uh, you know, 15 years ago during the George W. Bush administration, a number of figures like Max Boot, for example, uh, were arguing that we should have higher rates of immigration so that we could have basically more cannon fodder, so that we could have more people to serve in uh, the various military expeditions that uh, people like Max Boot were supporting. So there is this sense in which there really is a coherent um, cluster of ideas here, where if you support uh, you know, large-scale immigration, if you support uh, going abroad crusading in terms of foreign policy, and if you support uh, you know, these massive trade deals, all of those things have a kind of add up to a, again, a kind of globalist conservatism. And then the counterforce to that is what you see at this conference, a national conservatism which is about borders, which is about our existing citizenry, which is about a restrained foreign policy, and which is about um, economic uh, policies that are for the advantage of America's uh, producers and workers and not just for the advantage of consumers and global efficiency. Let's talk about non-interventionism. You've always been associated with publications that have been very skeptical of foreign intervention. Yet, you know, one of the marquee names of this National Conservative Convention uh, is John Bolton. Now, he's good for box office, there's no doubt about that, but um, he's a big-time intervention guy. Uh, could you reflect? Well, that's right. That's the contradiction you see within uh, the Trump coalition right now, where it includes um, certain hawkish elements who are nonetheless nationalists in the sense that they reject uh, many kinds of international law restraints upon uh, the United States, and they don't like international institutions uh, constraining what America can do. So I think that describes uh, John Bolton. There's also, um, you know, there is a sense of... Um, you know, threats that we are facing in the world. John Bolton, I think, has a kind of monomania for the Middle East, which is uh, very detrimental in formulating foreign policy. I think what you've perhaps seen, uh, you know, during the sessions at this conference is that many of us are much more worried about China and um, the sort of economic Cold War we're in with China as opposed to, uh, you know, the idea of uh, the Middle East being the primary source of um, sort of global uh, competition in the future, uh, conflict one might even say. Um, so, you know, John Bolton's in the administration. Uh, it's not as if this conference is doing something unusual in having both him and Tucker Carlson present. This is, you know, uh, what, the way the Trump coalition already uh, looks. Um, but it seems to me the weight of things really is on the side of the non-interventionists. And you, you had that come through in Peter Thiel's opening remarks on the first day and in the remarks of some of the uh, sponsors of the conference uh, who spoke right before Peter Thiel. And uh, over the course of today, now I do think you're going to see a, a rather, you know, sort of hawkish foreign policy panel later this afternoon. But I think actually if you surveyed most of the attendees and uh, even most of the panelists perhaps throughout the conference, you would find that uh, the weight of their opinion is on the side of non-intervention. And in part what's happened is there's been a sort of pendulum swing 
uh, a shift in the direction of non-intervention because we've seen the results of interventionism. We've seen the results uh, not only of the Iraq war, but we also have this prolonged and seemingly endless war in Afghanistan, which is no longer achieving anything, if it ever was. Um, you know, certainly going after Al-Qaeda, going after bin Laden made sense, but um, what we've been doing in Afghanistan has been not even nation building. We've simply been trying to stave off the inevitable uh, return of the Taliban, and that's, uh, it's like a Sisyphean task. Uh, we've seen with respect to Libya and, you know, in so many other places, uh, interventions under liberal Democrats like Obama, interventions under neoconservative Republicans like George W. Bush, they all tend to have uh, a detrimental effect and they all tend to actually clear space for more radical Islamism. Uh, you saw that the Iraq war actually uh, sort of created more, uh, you know, space for organizations like um, Al-Qaeda in Mesopotamia and um, uh, ultimately the Islamic State uh, in that region. You saw that the Libyan war cleared the way for various warlords and Islamist factions as well. Um, there's this sense in which this uh, interventionist foreign policy is radically counterproductive because what it does is it winds up actually clearing the way and in effect promoting uh, the kind of radical Islamism that many conservatives and most conservatives, I would say, want to resist. Let me throw out a piece of uh, interviewer's red meat. I regularly come across the phrase zombie Reaganism when I'm uh, reading online uh, about the conservative movement. Could you explain just what it is? Yeah, I mean, zombie Reaganism is a term that shows the frustration many conservatives, especially at the grassroots, feel with the reduction of conservatism to a set of talking points and cliches. And, you know, the real Reagan record, I think, is quite different from uh, the kind of uh, pure cliche that you see promulgated, uh, you know, by any number of people who want to claim the Reagan mantle. Um, Zombie Reaganism is a way of rejecting that. It's a way of looking at, you know, for example, all the candidates who were running against Donald Trump in 2016 in the Republican primaries, all of whom wanted to portray themselves as the real successors to Ronald Reagan. And I think that, you know, Donald Trump himself and also uh, many of his supporters basically said, is Reagan what we really need right now? Reagan was perhaps the right thing for the end of the Cold War, but uh, right now we're in a very different global situation, uh, economically, culturally, and strategically. And invoking Reagan constantly as a symbol and invoking Reagan in a way to shut down any kind of conservative debate and discussion and diversity is um, ineffective and, uh, and, and deleterious. I mean, all it does is Reagan has basically become a symbol co-opted by the establishment. He's become a way to, um, you know, claim that there is a consensus when in fact right now there is... Um, to the extent there is a consensus, it's a anti-establishment consensus. And it's really, um, you know, Reagan himself was someone who actually had many um, disputes with uh, the old sort of uh, white shoe Republican Eastern elite, uh, as Nixon called it. Well, basically, the Republican establishment co-opted uh, the Reagan legacy. And um, zombie Reaganism is a term that's being used to basically say that uh, the grassroots and the activist class is not going to be bound by this Reagan mythology and the way in which Reagan's used by the establishment. Dan, let's go for the big final wrap-up question. Uh, what form should political conservatism take? You know, how are the differences we've talked about today playing out? Well, on the one hand, I think many uh, core conservative concerns of the last 30 years will continue to be prominent in the era of national conservatism. So uh, you're going to continue to see uh, a fondness for tax cuts, as you've seen with Donald Trump. 
Uh, you're going to then, however, see these uh, you know, sort of three primary thematic area differences on immigration, on trade, and on foreign policy, and I believe that's going to continue. I mean, what's interesting is that many of the uh, Donald Trump grassroots are actually much more uh, non-interventionist, perhaps, than even the president is, and I think the president realizes this. Um, and you see a bit of a tension still between uh, people like John Bolton, who have had long careers in the Republican Party and you know various uh, you know long-standing conservative uh, movement institutions, which still have a more hawkish dimension, perhaps, than uh, the conservative grassroots have. So you'll continue to see some tension there, but I think. Over time, you're having this, uh, you know, it's tilting in the direction of non-interventionism, of, you know, sort of an America first economic nationalist policy, and in terms of uh, immigration restriction. Now, the other dimension that I think is coming through in this conference is that not everything is about government policy, not everything is about simply electing the right people. Um, there's also this question of what's happening in the realm of culture and the realm of economic power. And right now, conservatives feel as if corporate America and Silicon Valley are very much aligned against them. And how conservatives should deal with that, whether it's through uh, you know, government policies that would address this or whether it's through uh, boycotts or a social movement of some kind that would counteract uh, this uh, left-wing tilt of corporate America is something that I think is going to be continued to dis be discussed for a long time now. Um, but really, there is, I think, this new front where conservatives are now thinking about culture uh, in terms of um, a conflict that is um, ex existential, that basically conservatives are going to be psychologically and culturally wiped out if they're not going to confront uh, the direction that corporate America is taking. And I think this actually has the capacity to transcend the left-wing, right-wing, liberal, conservative uh, kind of dimensions because I think many people you know on the left or in the center also feel that corporate America is combining a kind of oligarchic economic program with a cultural you know eccentricity or a cultural kind of narrowness uh, an orthodoxy that is uh, rather different from what most Americans want to see and it's not because most Americans are intolerant or don't like you know uh, you know some of the special interest or you know cultural uh, directions in which the corporate America is going but they don't like the sense that it has to be enforced and that corporate America wants to be the vanguard and wants to be uh, policing speech and policing thought um, I think most people feel as if right now uh, there's a sense in which corporate America has become the new church and it's become uh, it's exercising the kind of uh, sensorial controls over thought and publication that liberals once resisted when it seemed as if Christianity and churches were the ones uh, pushing morality on people. There's a sense in which uh, corporate America and the media are now pushing a morality uh, that is uh, simply constraining to people. They feel it's uh, an intrusion upon conscience and an intrusion upon uh, their freedom of expression. Dan, this was great. Thank you so much. Peter Kadzis, I am chomping at the bit to ask you about <laughs> something that, that came up, among other places, at the very end of your conversation uh, with Dan McCarthy, which I have to say kind of freaks me out, and I'd like to hear you discuss it. But before I get there, since I just mentioned my own visceral personal response to this thing that we'll get into in a moment, uh, we should probably put your personal political beliefs on the table here in a way that we don't usually in this podcast. Uh, I guess you could argue that our beliefs are implicit in the analyses that we offer, the things that strike us as noteworthy. But um, where were you coming from in terms of your own core assumptions about the way the world should work as you had this conversation with Dan McCarthy and as you talked to other people engaged in this project of national conservatism? 
Oh, I've been coming. I was coming, am coming from about the same place I've been for about 10 years, which is a man without a political party. Now, as a journalist, that's a very helpful place to be. Uh, it's also help, helpful to be very skeptical of any elector, the public official. But um, personally, I'm center-left economically, center-right socially, and pretty non-interventionist when it comes to foreign policy. Let me tell you what creeped me out in that McCarthy interview. It was his assertion that there is an existential conflict going on in the cultural realm that is in danger of, I can't remember how he described it, psychologically wiping out conservatives, but there was this, you know, not physically wiping them out, but that they are facing psychological obliteration of some sort at the hands of corporate America and this progressive ideological elite that he claims controls most major institutions. And what really spooks me about this, there's actually two things. First off, I think human history shows us that any time a particular group claims that they are facing an existential threat, that's when we see the most problematic examples of human aggression as they use that perceived threat to lash out. That's my contention anyway. And I guess the other thing fueling my unease here is that when Dan McCarthy talks about culture, he doesn't really he doesn't really say what his cultural ideal is. It's clear that he's in favor of military non-interventionism. Uh, I think I understand his economically based misgivings about illegal immigration. But I'm not quite sure what, what this culture is that he thinks is under threat and what the alternate culture that he believes poses the threat uh, is or where it's coming from. So can you talk me through that? I, I can't speak for Dan, but I can speak for myself. Many years ago, I worked at Time Life, but well before I got there, in the early 60s, I think, Time Magazine was planning a cover story on W.H. Auden. They ultimately scrapped it, and they scrapped it because the editors found out he was gay. That's ridiculous, but that was the culture at the time. Flash forward about 20 years, Time Life had been taken over by Warner Records, or they had merged together. And Time Warner issued rap music that urged the killing of policemen. I've asked myself, which would I rather live in? A culture that may have been mildly homophobic, or a culture that profited mightily from urging that police officers be killed. To me, it, it's that prejudice can be overcome. The profit motive uh, is insatiable. Now, that's a flashback, but, but that's when I began thinking about some of these things. When he alludes to the cultural consequences of uh, immigration, you and I are both half Irish and both have the other half of our ancestry from uh, places in Eastern Europe. It's Lithuania for you, right? Slovakia for me. Uh, there were times in American history when both sides of our respective families would be seen as inappropriate intrusions on a fundamentally Anglo-Saxon 
American body politic. And I guess I'm wondering if if that is, if not part of what Dan McCarthy's talking about in the conversation we heard, uh, that that's a Pat Buchanan thing, and he seems indebted to Pat Buchanan. Is that something that was in the air at this convention? No, he, not at no? all, and you're reading way too much into that. Your relatives and my relatives were legal immigrants, and your grandparents and my grandparents had the right to vote, and their children were went through schooling, in my family's case, public schools, you know, where they were effectively assimilated into the country. That's a very different situation. The immigration problems in the United States transcend North America or North and Central America. Our friend and colleague David Bernstein just wrote a piece this week saying that forced or unexpected immigration is the international challenge of the first half of the 21st century. It's happening in Africa, within Africa, from Africa to Europe. This is an international problem. It's destabilizing societies all around the world. Now, it's not destabilizing Russia because no one's fighting to get into Russia. It's not destabilizing China because no one's fighting to get into China. McCarthy didn't put it this way, but I'm just saying that the, the issue of unanticipated immigration or immigration over and above what a system is designed to handle is an international problem. Now, what Trump is doing on the border is a disgrace. I think there's a very strong case to be made against illegal immigration and the status quo when it comes to uh, enforcement of immigration. Um, Like you, I'm deeply concerned about what's happening at the border. I'm also, as you can tell from my question, concerned about the sort of notions of, of ethnic and racial belonging or lack thereof that can come up in the immigration debate. But no, yeah, in, I, I in, don't mean to suggest that I don't see illegal immigration in, as a problematic issue, because it is. And by the way, on the right, there, there are many critics of this idea of a conservative nationalism or nationalism in general. The problem with the idea is that it's a very loaded subject. Um, especially with the rise of white nationalism. Um, yeah, we're you know, seeing it, a lot of it, yeah. It, and the organizers of this conference went to real considerable effort to screen out, you know, the, not names known to us, but the sort of agitators, you know, what one time might have been called alt-right or, you know, proud boys. Or, it's a very loaded word. Let me ask you a closing question. Among the people you talk to, at this conference, how much ambivalence was there about having Donald Trump be the champion of this worldview that they were discussing, given his many problematic personal qualities? That's a really good question. Look, the editor of the National Review was there and he liked some things about Trump and he strongly disliked other things and told some funny stories about his interactions with Trump. But National Review, after all, ran that huge issue where they had almost every conservative in the world say why they why you shouldn't vote for Trump. Most of the people I talked to had have 
profound reservations about Donald Trump. That doesn't mean they oppose him. They very much respect the rejection of politics as usual that Trump represents, even if they were surprised by it. I would say that there was pretty widespread unease about Trump, but unease is not the same thing as outright rejection. All right, before we wrap up, is there anything that I haven't given you a chance to touch on about this event or about this movement that you should talk about before we go? One thing, Adam, and that was the widespread opposition in fear of further globalization. You know, I said that there were ambivalent feelings about Trump. There was very little ambivalence about globalization, which I think generally was thought of something that hurt the United States, that hurt the working man and woman. It's the closest I've ever seen to uh, an almost anti-business point of view. J.D. Vance said something, the guy who wrote Hillbilly Elegy that we mentioned at the very beginning. He's a venture capitalist, and he said that from his office, he can look down the street, and there are MDs, brain specialists, behaviorist specialists, making individually small fortunes, working on ways to addict our children to electronic devices. He said, you look the other way down the street, and and there's the same sort of medical doctors researching on the diseases that our grandchildren will contend with. He said, that's not right. That was probably the most dramatic moment, you know, To expect a group of conservative people to be so naturally anti-business or have such strong reservations is, in my experience, very unusual. All right. That is going to do it for another installment of The Scrum. Peter Kadzis, thanks. Thanks a lot, Adam. Thanks to you for taking the time to listen, as always. We would love it if you subscribed to The Scrum, if you haven't already. You can get us pretty much everywhere you find your podcasts. While you're at it, please leave a review if you haven't done that. We'd also like to hear from you, either on Twitter, I'm at Riley Adam, Peter is at Kadzis, or by email, you can get us at scrum at wgbh.org. Our engineer was Doug Sugartz. We get crucial production help from him, Andrew Massawa, Gary Mott, and John Parker. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.